Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome to the Book of Mormon podcast. This discussion is going to be on Alma chapter 32. Now, this, uh, this particular chapter is one of the best uh, chapters in the scriptures about faith in Jesus Christ. I want you all to, also to be thinking, and you probably remember that this also includes the seed that is mentioned, uh, planting the seed. What is the seed? So be thinking about that. We'll, come, we'll figure out what that is later. And uh, it may not be faith. It might be something else. So anyway, let's get into this. Now remember that Alma's with uh, several other missionaries. They're teaching the Zoramites, and so this is uh, to the people there in, Zor- in uh, among the Zoramites. Verse one. And it came to pass that they did go forth and began to preach the word of God unto the people, entering into their synagogues and into their houses. Yea, and even they did preach the word in their streets. And it came to pass that after much labor among them, they began to have success among the poor class of people. For behold, they were cast out of the synagogues because of the coarseness of their apparel. Therefore, they were not permitted to enter into their synagogues to worship God, being esteemed as filthiness. Therefore, they were poor. Yea, they were esteemed by their brethren as dross. They were kind of the scum thrown out in the smelting process. That's what dross means. Therefore, they were poor as to things of the world. And also, they were poor in heart. The term poor in heart means to be spiritually humble, to have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Now, as Alma was teaching and speaking unto the people upon the hill Oneida, there came a great multitude unto him, who were those of whom we have been speaking, of whom were poor in heart because of their poverty as to the things of the world. And they came unto Alma, and the one who was the foremost among them, this may have been a leader of a significant family, said unto him, Behold, what shall these my brethren do? For they are despised of all men because of their poverty. Yea, and more especially by our priests, for they have cast us out of our synagogues, which we have labored abundantly to build with our own hands, and they have cast us out because of our exceeding poverty, and we have no place to worship our God, and behold, what shall we do? And now when Alma heard this, he turned him about, his face immediately towards him, and he beheld with great joy, for beheld that their afflictions had truly humbled them, and that they were in a preparation to hear the word of of the Lord. To hear the word, sorry. Humility means down to earth. Hugh Nibley says, uh, It has been wisely observed that a blessing is anything that brings us nearer to God. Thus our afflictions often become our greatest blessings. It is in our extremities that most often we meet God, not in our comfort. Thus, any time conditions come to pass, even what what at the time might be construed as tragic or unfortunate conditions, that leads us toward the truth or contribute to our eventual well-being, we have indeed been blessed. And that was by Millet McConkie. Verse 7, Therefore we did, he did say no more to the other multitude, but he stretched forth his hand and cried unto those whom he beheld, who were truly penitent, and said unto them, I behold that ye are lowly in heart, and if so, blessed are ye. Behold, thy brother hath said, What shall we do? For we are cast out of our synagogues, that we cannot worship our God. Behold, I say unto you, Do ye suppose that ye cannot worship God, save it be in your synagogues only? Elder McCaukey said, Deity is worshipped in prayer, song, sermon, and testimony. By the making of covenants, offering of sacrifices, performance of ordinances, and the participation in religious rituals and ceremonies, he is worshipped by man's act 
of believing divine truths by his being converted to them in their, fil- in their fullness. He may be worshipped in thought, word, and deed, but the most perfect of all worship comes from those who first believe the gospel, who then participate in its outward forms, and who finally keep the standards of personal righteousness that, that, that appertain to it. Uh, and Millet McConkie also said, we also worship Christ the Lord through emulation, through imitation, through seeking to be like him, through se- serving others and growing in spiritual graces until that perfect day when we are endowed by him with the fullness of the glory of the Father. Verse 11, and moreover, I would ask, do ye suppose that ye must not worship God only once in a week? We need to have our personal religious observance every day. I say unto you, it is well that we are, that ye are cast out of your synagogues, that ye may be humble, and that ye may learn wisdom. For it is necessary that you should learn wisdom. For it is because that ye are cast out, that ye are despised of your brethren because of your exceeding poverty. Hugh Nibley said they couldn't go in because they didn't observe the dress standards. The dress standards were very strict. Continuing verse 12, that ye are brought to a lowliness of heart, for ye are necessarily brought to be humble. God will have a humble people. We can either be humble by choice or have it forced upon us. President Benson once said that. Verse 13, And now because ye are compelled to be humble, blessed are ye, for a man sometimes, if he is compelled to be humble, seeketh repentance. And now surely whosoever repenteth shall find mercy, and he that findeth mercy and endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. And now, as I said unto you, that because ye were compelled to be humble, ye were blessed. Do ye not suppose that they are more blessed who truly humble themselves because of the word? Yea, he that truly humbleth himself, and repenteth of his sins, and endureth to the end, the same shall be blessed. Yea, much more blessed than they who are compelled to be humble because of their exceeding poverty. Therefore, blessed are they who humble themselves without being compelled to be humble. Or rather, in other words, blessed is he that believeth in the word of God, and is baptized without stubbornness of heart. There are no blessings to be had in resisting the impressions of the Spirit. Surveys among converts to the church indicate that the great majority of them knew the message of the restoration to be true upon first hearing it. It is also generally true that those who respond most readily to the message of the missionaries continue after baptism to grow in the things of the Spirit more rapidly and sink their spiritual roots deeper than those who confused intellect and independence of thought with stubbornness of heart. Continuing verse 16, Yea, without being brought to know the word, or even compelled to know, before they will believe. Yea, there are many who do say, If thou wilt show unto us a sign from heaven, then we shall know of a surety, then we shall believe. So it sounds like Alma is using his uh, recent conversation with Korihor here to uh, use that with, uh, with these people from the Zoramites. In the great revelation on signs, the Lord says, He that seeketh signs shall see signs, but not unto salvation. President Kimball explained, certainly we should not be interested in signs. Signs are available, and anyone, I believe, can have signs who wants them. I believe if one wants revelations enough to crave them beyond the rightness of it, that eventually he will get his revelations, but they may not come from God. I am sure that there can be many spectacular things performed because the devil is very responsive. He is listening, and he is eager to do it, and so he gives strange experiences. Manifestly, the performance of miracles and the appearance of signs and wonders are not evidences that those who do these things are servants of God or teachers of truth. In our day, God does not use miracles or signs as a way of teaching or convincing the unbeliever. As a result, we should not ask for signs for this purpose, and we should be deeply suspicious of the so-called spiritual evidences of those who do. The sign-seekers, the God-tempters, presume to put the Almighty on trial by challenging him to prove his own existence. 
In their pride, the corridors of this world set up the preconditions under which they may condescend to believe, but it is all a sham. Their insistence on signs is not meant to foster faith, but to justify doubt, and the seed of faith will never grow in the soil of doubt. Where there is a will to doubt, a heavenly sign or evidence will be ignored, rejected, or rationalized away. The Lord told young Joseph Smith, Behold, if they will not believe my words, they would not believe you, my servant Joseph. If it were possible that you should show them all these things which I have committed unto you, the rational mind will always reject what the hardened heart is unprepared to accept. That is why signs without faith are a barrier against, not a path to, God. That was by Rodney Turner. Verse 18, Now I ask, is this faith? Behold, I say unto you, Nay, for if a man knoweth a thing, he hath no cause to believe, for he knoweth it. And now, how much more cursed is he that knoweth the will of God, and doeth it not, than he that only believeth, or only hath cause to believe, and falleth into transgression? Just as a wise parent keeps medicine or tools out of a child's reach, so does God withhold divine knowledge from the ill-prepared. In his wisdom and mercy he has ordained that faith must precede certitude, so that in the very process of exercising faith, the individual develops the spiritual maturity needed to possess divine knowledge, in righteousness. Thus, capacitated, such knowledge magnifies rather than diminishes one's relationship to God. For example, the Lord promised the brother of Jared that if he developed sufficient faith, he could be shown all things, for he could no longer be kept without the veil. Christ was bound by his own promise. He could not deny the brother of Jared the knowledge his faith had prepared him to receive. This is an eternal principle. Hence the prophet Joseph Smith's remark, God hath not revealed anything to Joseph, but what he will make known unto the twelve. And even the least saint may know all things as fast as he is able to bear them. And again, that was by Rodney Turner. Verse 20, Now of this thing ye must judge. Behold, I say unto you, that it is on the one hand, even as it is on the other, and it shall be unto every man according to his work. And now, as I said concerning faith, faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. So this is one of the scripture mastery verses in seminary. Faith and perfect knowledge are not incompatible, else how would God, whose knowledge is perfect, possess the attribute of faith? Alma is defining faith from the viewpoint of mortality, not the vantage point of the eternities. In the lectures on faith, Joseph Smith spoke on faith in its unlimited sense. Faith is the principle by which Jehovah works and through which he exercises power over all temporal as well as eternal things. Take this principle or attribute, for it is an attribute from the deity, and he would cease to exist. Among exalted beings, faith, then, is the first great governing principle which has power, dominion, and authority over all things. By it they exist. By it they are upheld. By it they are changed, or by it they remain, agreeable to the will of God. Without it there is no power, and without power there could be no creation nor existence. In the eternal sense, because faith is the power of God himself, it embraces within its fold a knowledge of all things. This measure of faith, the faith by which the worlds are and were created, and which sustains and upholds all things, is found only among resurrected persons. It is the faith of saved beings, but mortals are in the process through faith of gaining eternal salvation. Their faith is based on a knowledge of the truth, within the meaning of Alma's statement that faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things, but that men have faith when they hope for things which are not seen, which are true. In this sense, faith is both preceded and supplanted by knowledge, and when any person gains a perfect knowledge on any given matter, then as pertaining to that thing, he has faith no longer, or rather, his faith is dormant, it has been supplanted by pure knowledge. And that was by Bruce R. McConkie. 
Continuing on, there are two kinds of faith. One of them functions ordinarily in the life of every soul. It is the kind of faith born by experience. It gives us certainty that a new day will dawn, that spring will come, that growth will take place. It is the kind of faith that relates us with confidence so that which is scheduled to happen. There is another kind of faith, rare indeed. This is the kind of faith that causes things to happen. It is the kind of faith that is worthy and prepared and unyielding, and it calls for things that otherwise would not be. It is the kind of faith that moves people. It is the kind of faith that sometimes moves things. Few men possess it. It comes by gradual growth. It is a marvelous, even a transcendent power. A power is real and is invisible as electricity. Directed and channeled, it has a great effect in a world filled with skepticism and doubt. The expression, seeing is believing, promotes the attitude. You show me and I will believe. We want all of the proof and all of the, existence, or all of the evidence first. It seems hard to take things on faith. When will we learn that in spiritual things it works the other way around? that believing is seeing. Spiritual belief precedes spiritual knowledge. When we believe in things that are not seen, but are nevertheless true, then we have faith. And that was by Elder Boyd K. Packer. Continuing uh, with verse 21, therefore, if ye have faith, ye hope for things which are not seen, which are true. Orson Pratt said, there is a great difference between faith and knowledge. I am told that there is such a country as China on the eastern borders of Asia, but I have never been there. I never have seen that country. I cannot say most positively that such a country exists. Only on the testimony of others I am informed that such is the case. I believe that testimony, but it is not a perfect knowledge to my own mind, obtained by my own experience. And so in regard to 10,000 other facts or events, we are in many, indeed in almost all instances, required to believe without a knowledge. As faith is not knowledge, but the, but the means to knowledge, so faith is not hope, but the basis of hope. Faith and hope are inseparable. One does not exist without the other. Faith in the redemptive power of Christ produces the hope of everlasting life. And that was by Rodney Turner. There is another facet to faith which is often misunderstood. Faith is not the power of positive thinking. One does not have faith simply because he is positive or optimistic. Faith is based on the truth. The truth as God knows it, the truth as a manifestation of the will and pleasure of the Lord. We do, not, we do need to be positive, but there is no virtue in being long-faced and dreary. But faith is another matter entirely. If a priesthood bearer is called upon to heal a dying man, for example, he does not command the sick one to rise from his bed of affliction in the name of faith, when that faith is no more than wishful thinking or hope that the man will live. Working by faith is not the mere speaking of a few well-chosen words. Anyone with the power of speech could have commanded the rotting corpse of Lazarus to come forth, but only one whose power was greater than death could bring life again to the brother of Mary and Martha. Nor is working by faith merely a mental desire, however strong that some eventuality shall occur. There may be, there may be those whose mental powers and thought processes are greater than any of the saints, but only persons who are in tune with the infinite can exercise the spiritual forces and powers that come from him. And that was by Elder Bruce R. McConkie. Verse 22, And now, behold, I say unto you, and I would that ye should remember that God is merciful unto all who believe on his name. Therefore he desireth in the first place that ye should believe, yea, even on his word. And now he imparteth his word by angels unto men, yea, not only men, but women also. President Joseph F. Smith said that when messengers are sent to minister to the inhabitants of the earth, they are not strangers, but from the ranks of our kindred, friends, and fellow beings, and fellow servants. 
The ancient prophets who died were those who came to visit their fellow creatures upon the earth. In like manner, our fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters and friends who have passed away from this earth, having been faithful and worthy to enjoy these rights and privileges, may have a mission given to them to visit their relatives and friends upon the earth again, bringing from the divine presence messages of love, of warning, of reproof and instruction to those whom they had learned to love in the flesh. Continuing verse 23, Now this is not all. Little children do have words given unto them many times, which confound the wise and the learned. And now, my beloved brethren, as ye have desired to know of me, what ye shall do because ye are afflicted and cast out. Now I do not desire that ye should suppose that I mean to judge you only according to that which is true. For I do not mean that ye all of you have been compelled to humble yourselves. For I verily believe that there are some among you who would humble themselves, let them be in whatever circumstances they might. Now, as I said concerning faith, that it is not a perfect knowledge, even so it is with my words, ye cannot know of their surety at first, unto perfection any more than faith is a perfect knowledge. An understanding of the principles of salvation does not come in an instant. The things of God are of deep import, and time and experience and careful and ponderous and solemn thoughts can only find them out. And that was by Joseph Smith. Uh, verse 27, But behold, if ye will awake and arouse your faculties, even to an experiment upon my word, President Hinckley said, Far more of us need to awake and arouse our faculties to an awareness of the great everlasting truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each of us can do a little better than we have been doing. We can be a little more kind. We can be a little more merciful. We can be a little more forgiving. We can put behind us our weaknesses of the past and go forth with new energy and increased resolution to improve the world about us. In our homes, in our places of employment, in our social activities, we have work to do, you and I, so very much of it. Let us roll up our sleeves and get at it with a new commitment, putting our trust in the Lord. Uh, continuing verse uh, 27, And exercise a particle of faith, yea, even if ye can no more than desire to believe, let this desire work in you, even until ye believe in a manner that ye can give place for a portion of my words. We consider that God has created, this is Joseph Smith, we consider that God has created man in a, with a mind capable of instruction and a faculty which may be enlarged in proportion to the heat and diligence given to the light communicated from heaven to the intellect and that the nearer man approaches perfection, the clearer are his views and the greater his enjoyments till he has overcome the evils of his life and lost every desire for sin and like the ancients arrives at that point of faith where he is wrapped in the power and glory of his maker and is caught up to dwell with him. But we consider that this is a station to which no man ever arrived in a moment. He must have been instructed in the government and laws of that kingdom by proper degrees until his mind is capable in some measure of comprehending the propriety, justice, equality, and consistency of the same. Verse 28, now we will compare the word unto a seed. So what is the seed compared to? It's the word, the word of God. Now, if you, will, if you give place that a seed may be planted in your heart, behold, if it be a true seed or a good seed, if you do not cast it out by your unbelief, that you will resist the spirit of the Lord, behold, it will begin to swell within your breasts. And when you feel these swelling motions, in other words, truth is felt, you will begin to say within yourselves, it must needs be that this is a good seed or that the word is good, for it beginneth to enlarge my soul. I want you to notice these words that are used here. Uh, enlarge my soul, it beginneth to enlighten my understanding, yea, it beginneth to be delicious to me. Notice what he's saying here. Um, this is probably just a coincidence, but notice the words swell, enlarge, enlighten, delicious. What does that spell when you add them together? It spells the word seed. Wow. 
must be a coincidence. Elder Maxwell said, Alma asked of this process, Oh, then, is not this real? He likens reality to light because it is discernible. Alma even employs the notion of taste. Little wonder an enlightened Joseph Smith on one occasion said of a doctrine and teaching, This is good doctrine. It tastes good. I can taste the principles of eternal life and so can you. You say honey is sweet and so do I. I can also taste the spirit of eternal life. I know it is good. And when I tell you of these things which were given to me by inspiration of the Holy Ghost, you are bound to receive them as sweet and rejoice more and more. Alma and Joseph preached the same thing as a result of their trying successfully the experiment of the gospel's goodness. Verse 29, Now behold, would not this increase your faith? I say unto you, Yea, nevertheless, it hath not grown up to a perfect knowledge. We need not be so vain as to, to suppose that because we have a testimony, because we have had spiritual experiences of one sort or another, we have a perfect or even an adequate knowledge of the gospel. That was by Millet McConkie. So don't think that because we've had a few experiences that we have perfect knowledge. Verse 30, But behold, as the seed swelleth and sprouteth and beginneth to grow, then you must needs say that the seed is good. For behold, it swelleth and sprouteth and beginneth to grow. And now behold, will not there strengthen, will this strengthen your faith? Yea, it will strengthen your faith. For you will say, I know that this is a good seed. For behold, it sprouteth and beginneth to grow. Those who accept the challenge to experiment upon the proposition that Jesus is the Christ, do more than read and pray about him. They seek to do those things he has commanded us to do. They will do his will, then they can come to know. Further, those who do the works of Christ began to receive the fruits of Christ and acquire the, the nature of Christ, since every good seed brings forth fruit after its own likeness. And that was by Millet McConkie again. Verse 31, And now behold, are ye sure that this is a good seed? I say unto you, Yea, for every seed bringeth forth unto its own likeness. Therefore, if a good seed groweth, it is good. But if it groweth not, behold, it is not good, therefore it is cast away. And now behold, because ye have tried the experiment, and planted the seed, and it swelleth, and sprouteth, and beginneth to grow, ye must needs know that the seed is good. And now behold, is your knowledge perfect? Yea, your knowledge is perfect in that thing, and your faith is dormant, and this because you know. For ye know that the word hath swelled your souls, and ye also know that it hath sprouted up, that your understanding doth begin to be enlightened, and your mind doth begin to expand. Rodney Turner said, While each successfully accomplished phase of the experiment is replaced with certitude or perfect knowledge of that phase, faith is still needed in carrying out each subsequent phase of the experiment. So initial faith produces initial knowledge, which in turn produces more faith, which then leads to even more knowledge, and so on until one's knowledge is perfect or complete pertaining to the entire experiment. Verse 35, O oh, then, is not this real? I say unto you, Yea, because it is light, and whatsoever is light is good, because it is discernible. Therefore, ye must know that it is good. And now, behold, after ye have tasted this light, is your knowledge perfect? I say unto you, Behold, I say unto you, Nay, neither must ye lay aside your faith, for ye have only exercised your faith to plant the seed, that ye might try the experiment to know if the seed was good. And behold, as the tree beginneth to grow, ye will say, Let us nourish it with great care, that it may get root, that it may grow up, and bring forth fruit unto us. And now behold, if ye nourish it with much care, it will, not, it will get root, and grow up, and bring forth fruit. But if ye neglect the tree, and take no thought for its nourishment, behold, it will not get any root. And when the heat of the sun cometh, and scorcheth it, because it hath no root, it withers away, and ye pluck it up, and cast it out. Now this is not because the seed was not good, but neither is it because the fruit thereof would not be desirable, 
but it is because your ground is barren and ye will not nourish the tree. Therefore, ye cannot have the fruit thereof. And thus, if ye will not nourish the word, looking forward with an eye of faith to the fruit thereof, ye can never pluck of the fruit of the tree of life. Elder Holland said, in this brilliant discourse, Alma moves the reader from a general commentary on faith in the seed-like word of God to a focused discourse on faith in Christ as the word of God, grown to a fruit-bearing tree, a tree whose fruit is exactly that of Lehi's earlier perception of Christ's love which is most precious, which is sweet above all that is sweet, and which is white above all that is white, yea, and pure above all that is pure. And ye shall feast upon the gospel of Christ, even until ye are filled, that ye hunger not, neither shall ye thirst. Christ is the bread of life, the living water, the true vine. Christ is the seed, the tree, and the fruit of eternal life. But the profound and central tree of life, imagery, in this discourse is lost, or at least greatly diminished, if the reader does not follow it, on into the next two chapters of the Book of Mormon. In Alma 33, Alma quoted Zenus' allegory of the olive tree and Zenic on the role of Christ in rewarding faith and focused on the fully developed image of Christ as the tree of life. So we'll get into those other chapters in a little bit. Verse 41, But if you will nourish the word, yea, nourish the tree as it beginneth to grow by your faith with great diligence and with patience, looking forward to the fruit thereof, if ye shall it, it shall take root, and behold, it shall be a tree springing up unto everlasting life. And because of your diligence and your faith and your patience with the word in, a nour in nourishing it, that it may take root in you, behold, by and by ye shall pluck the fruit thereof, which is most precious, which is sweet above all that is sweet, and which is white above all that is white, yea, and pure above all that is pure. And ye shall feast upon this fruit, even until ye are filled, that ye hunger not, neither shall ye thirst. This sounds a lot like the same fruit found in First Nephi and, Lephi, and Lehi's dream of the iron rod and the tree of life. Then, my brethren, ye shall reap the rewards of your faith and your diligence and patience and long-suffering, waiting for the tree to bring forth fruit unto you. So this is just a wonderful discussion about faith, um, that it's the uh, essence of the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ. It's, the, it's an understanding and that we can, we can obtain um, knowledge of, of those things that we have faith in and so that our faith can be dormant, but that faith is an eternal principle that uh, God exercises and Jesus Christ exercises in their creative processes. I bear testimony that these things are true and do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time. Bye.